Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture, and I am here with Melissa Hidalgo talking about her new book, Moslandia, Morrissey Fans in the Borderlands. Melissa, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I would love to start with you talking about why this book, what got you interested in this topic and getting to start to write this? Well, I've, I've the, the book sort of you know, in, in my mind was a long time coming in the sense that, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles and I've been a Morrissey fan for a long time. In fact, I can pinpoint it to the year 1991. And we can talk about <laughs> why that year a little bit later. But, um, it, you know, and as, as a self-identified Chicana, Latina, you know, meaning being born in the United States and specifically in the East L.A. area with Mexican uh, heritage, there are a lot of us in Los Angeles in California and sort of growing up listening to music stations like KROQ. um, I grew up around a lot of people who were Morrissey and Smiths fans. And I didn't really know who the Smiths were um, because like I said, in 1991, I was, I became a Morrissey fan and he was a really, already a solo artist. Um, But it wasn't until maybe about 10, 20 years later that I started noticing a lot of press attention, a lot of media attention to a, a so-called phenomenon of Latino Morrissey fans or Mexican <laughs> Morrissey fans, you know, as if, you know, it really surprised a lot of people. And I have to say that a lot of these uh, earlier pieces were written by white folks, you know, maybe from New York, maybe from, you know, uh, magazines, music magazines, who were very puzzled by the fact that Latinos could love Morrissey. <laughs> Um, and you know, it was amusing. And at the same time, it was a little like offensive, like, well, why not? You know, like if, because for me, it was highly contextualized, you know, part Mm -hmm. of living in LA and having access to a radio station that played not just Morrissey music or Smith's, but the Pet Shop Boys and Susie and the Banshees and The Cure and Depeche Mode and all of, you know, New Order, all of these sort of British UK bands. And in fact, it was a, a British DJ on this radio station. And so in in my mind, I mean, that was just as much of part of the soundscape of growing up in LA as, as was Mexican music, as was hip hop and R and B music, you know, so it wasn't anything to me, but, but I started paying attention to that. And, you know, I think with Morrissey living in Los Angeles and really kind of reaching out to his fans at a time when the British fans and the British music press in particular sort of, um, cut ties with him or got mm. really to him, you know, so he comes to Los Angeles in the 1990s and establishes himself in a way that I think um, also kind of signaled to everybody else that I have new fans and these fans are Latinos. And, you know, he went on tour in 1999, um, a tour called Oya Esteban, which, which means, hey, Steven, which is his first name. <laughs> and so I think that really sort of signaled, you know, that he, that he had a, a new group of fans. And for me, I, I was really fascinated with that. Um, not only the press attention, um, but Morrissey's own acknowledgement of that. And so I, I would say that those seeds for the book were planted in the late 90s. 
Right. And so you start out by, you, you mentioned some of these things, defining a couple of these uh, concepts, right? You talk about, you define fandom for yourself and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you contextualize it in the text, um, also borderlands and also the Chicano, Chicana, Latino, Latina, Mexican sort of heritage. And so can you talk a little bit about how you define those and how you use them in your, in your book? Yeah, so for me, fans and fandom um, is often misunderstood. You know, when we think about fans, I mean, it, it comes from the word fanatic. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, when we think of fans, I think right away, I think in the United States anyway, my mind at least goes to like football fans, you know, sports fans. Right. Um, and fans could be, you know, fans of Star Trek, you know, mm-hmm. fans of Harry Potter. And I think what we see or what we understand of fans are these crazy people that don't have any other lives except to devote themselves to this one thing that they like. And I think another big motivation for me is as a scholar, as, as someone, as a scholar of popular culture and interested in fandom, to really kind of work against these stereotypes of fans as crazy people. And Morrissey fans in particular, Morrissey fans in particular are often, you know, stereotyped to be depressed and lonely mm-hmm. and wanting to kill themselves, right? And <laughs> And I'm not, you know, who's to say that those fans, you know, don't exist. But what my thing was like, I want to push back against that, because when you really start to think about fandom, you really kind of start to and when you really kind of pay attention to how fans operate and what fans do, we're creative people, we're artistic people, you know, we're happy people, we like to go out and dance, we like to go out and sing karaoke, you know, we like to make (laughs) art, we like to get other fans together, we like to form tribute bands. And I started kind of realizing that these are the would be the focus points of the chapters in the book. And that's really what the book looks at is not so much to think about Morrissey fans as sad, depressing people, but to really understand fandom is active, as creative, as generative, as bringing people together in communities. And there are lots of ways in which fans do that. And we're not just fans, you know, we're teachers, we're artists, right. we have day jobs, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We have families, partners. And so I also think, too, it's understanding fandom is one part of of someone's life. And, you know, no one questions football fans you know no one questions baseball fans no one questions you know I think this is where the kind of gender thing really I think is important because you know when I think about baseball fans for example it's you know I'm a Los Angeles Dodgers fan as well mm-hmm. and people who have season tickets you know and go to 80 games a year no one bats an eyelash in fact right. oh, yeah, cool, you know <laughs> but when you say you go see Morrissey and you've seen him 80 times you know and you followed him <laughs> look at you like don't you have a life and so I really kind of want to challenge these assumptions about fans and and really what that means in terms of the borderlands um I'm really thinking about as someone coming from a Chicano studies background a Chicano literature background thinking about um the theorists that came out in the 80s and 90s that really were trying to theorize what it is to live in the borderlands. And I'm thinking specifically of a Chicana Latina feminist theorist um, from, from Texas named Gloria Saldua. Mm-hmm. And I cite her, you know, quite widely in the book. And, you know, to, when, when you're from the Mexican U.S. borderlands in particular, um, you know, it comes with it this heavy history of racism, of police violence, of military violence. I mean, we have we live in a day and age, literally speaking, where we have now, well, I'm not going to say we because it it's not mine, but there is a president <laughs> in the United States that is, is hell-bent on building a wall. Right. Um, and so I think in, in, in mobilizing the term borderlands and in really kind of keeping that focus, it's about people who 
at least on the U.S. side, especially, you know, for me and, and my friends, my family, those of us born in the United States, but with ties in Mexico on the other side, what does it mean to sort of have to have one foot in one world and one foot in the other? Um, what does it mean to have a contradictory identity? What does it mean to have a racialized identity and yet an identity that's sort of historically been, um, you know, denigrated and you know, looked as, looked as criminal. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. these are the terms that, that are used to describe Mexicans who are criminalized, you know. Um, and again, really kind of complicating what it means to be a fan of Morrissey if you're a brown person and growing up in an area where, you know, you're supposed to look a certain way and be a certain way. You're supposed to speak Spanish. You're supposed to like Mexican music. And I'm not saying that that, that you know, should be the only way to define Mexicanness, but I think it's a way to also understand that this is part of being Mexican in the borderlands of the United States, is that you're getting it both from the Latin side, the Mexican side, and the U.S. side. But I would even go beyond that and saying it's not even, sometimes we don't want to identify as American, you mm-hmm. know, because American means Donald Trump and his followers. That's not me. I don't right. want any part and sometimes we look beyond that. And I know that a lot of us growing up listening to Morrissey, it was about kind of idealizing this sense of Britishness, like not American. So it was English and it was stuff that we could understand because it was in English, but it wasn't American. And so it made, at least for me as, as a young fan, it made it even more appealing and attractive to listen to Morrissey, to listen to the Smiths, to listen to these British bands, precisely because they weren't American. Because again, if America is the country that's trying to tell you that, go back to where you came from. Well, I don't want to be part of that either. Right. Exactly. And so growing up in the borderlands, I think is really about embracing these contradictions, understanding these contradictions, understanding these much larger histories of violence and, and the relationship between the U S and Mexico. And that there are borderlands everywhere that there is, I think a military, you know, a militarily drawn, a national boundary that's defended, you know, that that's trying to demarcate between us and them. You know, and for Morrissey, I think it was North England, you know, being a northerner, you know, the border of North England and South England, I think ancestrally for him, it's also the Irish border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, you know, so really kind of holding those those concepts and about what does it mean to kind of have this fandom emerge that specifically can only really be um kind of rooted or a product of this area of the borderlands. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when and you just mentioned that that idea when you talk about how Morrissey is sort of existing on the borderlands in many ways, right? Mm. With with oh, yeah. yeah, being um Irish blood, English heart, you know that all of that, right? Um and so I thought that was really interesting. And so one thing, so you start out by the importance of this place, right? The importance of this borderland in you walk us through sort of Los Angeles or Maz Angeles. And so you sort of situate us in place. And so why, like, what is it about Los Angeles? Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and about Los Angeles that has created the sort of this Morrissey Mecca? Yeah. um, I, well, the idea of Maz Angeles, you know, I think again, goes back to the early nineties when he first established himself as a solo artist and no longer part of the Smiths. And the fact that he did a lot of these kinds of milestone career moves in Los Angeles, I think, is accounts for a large part of why the fan base really kind of blossoms there. You know, he didn't go to New York and go on, 
you know, David Letterman, he came to Los Angeles and went on Johnny Carson, right? Mm -hmm. He um, premiered his rockabilly style touring band of the Kill Uncle era in the 1990s, early 1991. He premiered it on K-Rock with Richard Blade in the Capitol Tower building in Hollywood. You know, he didn't do it in New York. And so the fact, or Chicago or anywhere else. So I think the fact that he kind of chose strategically, perhaps for himself, maybe because of other connections that he had to Los Angeles and just kind of liking L.A. I mean, mm-hmm. it's funny. Cause there's, there's <laughs> When I was researching the book, there were some quotes where he like was like, I'll never move to L.A. You know, it's plastic people. <laughs> and then there he is, you know, like living there, buying a house in West Hollywood, the Hollywood Hills right above Sunset. <laughs> like, how L.A. can you get, dude? You live in freaking Hollywood. You know, like, it's, so it's like I chalk it up to like this is classic Morrissey, like oh, yeah. the irony of Morrissey, right? And so I really think that Los Angeles kind of grew um, because of how he established himself as a solo artist. Um, and also the fact that Los Angeles, you know, if we want to think about it in terms of population and the fans, you know, it is a majority Mexican city. Los Angeles was once part of Mexico. California was once part of Mexico. And it wasn't that long ago. It was 170 years ago that the border moved. Mm-hmm. And I think that Morrissey you know, in kind of also wanting to get away from England. And, you know, this is after he lost the court case with his, his former bandmates from this Mr. trying to sue him for back royalties and he got disgusted and he left and he comes to LA. And I think really kind of found a, a new home and a new set of fans that were going to embrace him no matter what. And I think it says something that in the seven years that Morrissey owned a home there and lived there in the 90s, he did not have a record contract. He wasn't you know, he he made he made the success without having the support of a radio deal or, you know, the kind of traditional marketing commercialized support that a lot of people have. He, he didn't have that. And I think that but when he did play smaller shows, when he opened up for a Mexican rock band called Jaguares in the 90s, when he did go on, on tour in the 1999, he did it without a record contract and he still sold out shows, you know, mm-hmm. um, still sold out concerts. He still, to this day, will sell out within minutes. And if you notice, you know, when when I sort of went back and did the work of looking where Morrissey toured most often since the 1990s, since Oya Esteban, which took him to Mexico and and Latin America for the first time. um, Yeah, you know, he does shows in Topeka, Kansas. He does shows in Michigan. He does shows in Chicago. He does shows, you know, in what seemingly like would be random spots. But he does a lot of his shows in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. He does a lot of shows in Texas. He does a lot of shows in L.A. and throughout California. He does a lot of shows in Las Vegas and Arizona. And again, I think that that speaks to where his fans are. And who his fans are. Oh, yes. I, it was when I was reading your book, you know, and as a big Morrissey fan and actually as a Smith fan before Morrissey, but growing up in the Midwest, um, I didn't have like, I was like, I wish I had these opportunities. <laughs> right? I was like, we had all the other bands come through and Minneapolis St. Paul is a big sort of space for many alternative bands, especially in the late 80s, right? Early 90s. <laughs> but I was still like, oh, everyone loves Morrissey. <laughs> going elsewhere you know i mean i think la to this day you know morrissey as far as i know he doesn't own a home there but he's there an awful lot and i know that he's spotted all the time in la 
when he came back recently from his big South American tour, like a year ago, two years ago, he was spotted right away in Amoeba Records and, Mm -hmm. you know, the book Soup. And so I think, you know, a lot of his bandmates live there. Mondo Lopez, his bass player, is from East L.A. You know, his Mm -hmm. guitarist, Gustavo, uh, not Gustavo Mansour. I don't know, maybe Gustavo. I know he's from Texas. I don't know if he lives in L.A. But Jesse Tobias apparently lives in L.A. and has a business there. And so I think that Morrissey you know, he'll stay at the Sunset Marquee Hotel, you know, mm-hmm. um, he's always in LA. And when he comes to play LA, he'll say I'm home, you know, he'll say right. things like this. So, he, you know, there is that kind of definite connection that he has, I think, that he doesn't have with any other city, um, at least in the US. I mean, I know that he's expressed a lot of affinity for places like Italy, um, you know, Mexico, even he's going to be touring in Mexico, you know, for the first time in about five years, he'll be there in March and in April. Um, so just a couple months. So, but he always comes home to LA, and so I think that his fans know that too. His fans recognize that, right? So, so what you do then is sort of talk about these different ways fans enact fandom, and so you start with um, Morrissey, or you know, so Morrissey karaoke. So, can you talk a little bit about that and that um, whole sort of um, fandom scene and space? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that makes Los Angeles, Los Angeles. It's just the sheer amount of Morrissey fan stuff that goes on. And every day I feel like I see something new, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a cruise now. There's a Morrissey cruise. <laughs> like he said, I think it's called Seasick Yet Still Doctor. I don't know. And it's the name of a Morrissey song. <laughs> and that there's going to be a tribute band, you know, on Morrissey. And I'm just like, man, only in L.A., right? Like <laughs> somewhere awesome. else. so it's like we're trying to do things that we haven't seen yet yes there's Morrissey I'm proud to say that my very good close uh, sister friend um, hosts it and it's it's her brainchild Alexis de la Rocha and it's been going on now it'll be six years this May um, at Eastside Love which is a club in Boyle Heights uh, right in Mariachi Plaza very historic neighborhood which I think is also significant where these a lot of these Morrissey fan events are held are often on the east side or on the southeast side, which is historically Mexican Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, Morrissey karaoke is an event that is also that in and of itself has received a lot of press coverage, um, a lot of media coverage, and it's a unique event. You know, it's not Morrissey karaoke in the sense of there are words on a screen and you get up there and you do it. It really is kind of a um, you can sing any song you want. The DJ there, Jess Funk, you know, has the internet mm-hmm. at his fingertips. And if you want to sing a crazy B-side that no one only but the fans know, like real fans, right? Like, quote, unquote, real fans. <laughs> if you want to sing C-set, yet still doc. C-set, yet still doctor. If you want to sing Life is a Pigsty, he'll pull it up for you and you can go up there and do it. And the thing is, because there are no words, it's not traditional karaoke. You're actually singing over the actual Morrissey or Smith's track. And you have to kind of know the words by heart. And there are plenty of people that go up there and they don't know the words and they'll pull it up on their phone and that's totally fine. But in my mind, like I'm a bit of a purist. I'm like, man, if you don't know the words of this song, like <laughs> you're not a fan, you know, get off. <laughs> Pick a different song. <laughs> you know? But it's a great space. You know, it's, it's, um, it's one of those spaces that, you know, on, you have the regulars, you know, what, who Alexis calls the veterans or the veteranos, the veteranas, right? The mm-hmm. ones that show up time every month. And then every month you have the virgins, you know, Um, you have the ones that have never been, who have never, you know, gotten up there to sing. And and then you have people who maybe will show up every few months. But I think no matter what, you know, you you show up there and it feels um, comfortable because as long as you're there to listen to Morrissey Smith's, if you if you love the music, you're going to have a good time, you know. 
Um, and that I think it's one of those signature, it's those typical like Mos Angeles events because it happens once a month and it's going on six years now and, and it's, there's no, there's no sign of it slowing down at all as far as I can tell. Um, there's also, there's a big tribute band scene in Los Angeles. You know, there's at least six, I think, active tribute bands in Los Angeles. Um, there's plenty of art shows that happen, um, maybe semi-annually. Um, there's, and a lot of times the kind of Morrissey and Smith's scenes, you know, uh, will often include, you know, a tribute band and then an art show, and then you can have Morrissey or, you know, karaoke, um, there's also disco nights, there's band, um, sometimes there are three or four bands at a convention that'll play, the convention happens once a year, the Morrissey Smith's convention, so there's always something happening going on there that revolves around Morrissey and his music. Right, yeah, and I love the fact that the Morrissey Oki was not this pre-packaged music. No, yeah, not but at it was, all. <laughs> it was just this, like, we're going to pull it up and we're going to pull up the song and turn down the vocals, and I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. You it's meant- really cool, yeah. Uh-huh, yes, you were going to say? No, I'm just kidding. It's really cool be- for that reason, because it's like you actually get to hear the real song and not some cheesy, like, you know, sad version of it from a, you know, from an electronic machine or something. Right, exactly. You don't hear the elevator version. Do you hear yeah. the actual? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, jo- you know, that, that's, that's Johnny Marino. So it, it makes it also kind of exciting because you kind of really do get to become Morrissey for a minute, you know? Right. Yes, I know. It's it's interesting because I was thinking about that and it's like this, it's still this point where when I'm walking through the store and I hear actual Smiths or actual Morrissey on the radio that's being piped mm-hmm. in, I'm still sort of shocked that, that like, yeah. you know, that that is appearing and, you know, I'm hearing that. Yeah, and you get so excited because you hardly ever get to hear it on the radio. Exactly. You're like, oh, it's a thought. And you got, you know, I find myself doing that too. And I'm like, oh my God, I have the CDs at home. I haven't, you know, like you can pull it up, but there is something exciting about hearing it spontaneously in a, in a place that you wouldn't expect, you know. Right. And so like reading that, it made me think of that. It's like that idea where you, you know, like it's in public and I'm hearing it and I'm actually hearing the song as opposed to the, you know, because karaoke can be fun, but the idea, but usually it's like, yeah, these prefab piped in music kind of karaoke. And that, I think hearing the real actual song, you know, it makes the people there happy too. Like, I mean, I'm thinking of the countless times I've been there and I've even hosted a few times on Alexis you know, hasn't been able to show up. And it's really just, it's something else to see, like you play a song, like, and especially the popular stuff, like this charming man, right. Mm -hmm. Or everybody's favorite, the anthem, I call it, you know, there is a light that never goes out. (laughs) And and, you know, you never get tired of it. When you hear it in public and you see everybody start to sing along, I mean, it really kind of becomes a shared moment of like, (gasps) Mm -hmm. everybody else loves the song and they know the words and they're singing it and I'm not crazy. And, you know, right. Because, Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because sometimes, like, with Morrissey and the Smiths, there's always those, like, I have these, like, you know, you find these pockets of people who just love them. But at least for me, a lot of times, it's like, what's that band? Who are those guys? Who's Morrissey? Or or Morrissey Morrissey does stuff now, right? That whole kind of thing. Yes, yes. Yeah, I do find that as well. Yeah, so just the idea, so just some of the things you were talking about, those like sort of shared fan spaces, I think what you were saying, sort of everybody realizes they're not crazy is important Mm -hmm. as well, right? I think so. I mean, I think that's a huge part of finding a fandom and you're finding your people, really, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
because Morrissey and the Smiths, you know, the Smiths are often seen, oh, they're just, they're from the 80s, you know, they don't do anything. Well, yeah, the Smiths have been broken up for 30 years. But Morrissey has released, you know, 11 solo albums. Like, he's he's been a solo artist for 25, you know, years. And I think people don't realize that. Or they just think of Morrissey and they think of the song Suedehead, maybe, you know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, no, man, he's done so many other things besides that. And And when I find fans who know that, who understand it, who like get it, who are like equally down with, you know, Staircase at the University, which is a song that was on his latest album that was released in 2014. You know, I get excited when I hear him perform that. I was like, oh my God, he's doing Staircase. And when I see other people get excited, it's just like, yes, you've been a fan and, and you know it. And it's not just about the Smiths and, you know, Girlfriend in a Coma, which right. is awesome, you know, but it's like, oh my God, he's done so much more than that. Yes. And, so- and the fan bases celebrate that, you know, and I think that's what's so important. Yeah. And so what I love, too, is that like then you talked about like the the extent of the tribute band in L.A., right? Mm-hmm. Be- because, you know, there's one or two tribute bands that, you know, I know of, but I was like, wow, there's tons of. Tri-. And then I had to go and download. Um, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, but. Mexery? How do, how do they oh, say Oh, Mexery. Mexery? I had to go. I was like, this sounds awesome. So I, of course, went yeah. and found And they are awesome. They're fabulous. They're so, from Mexico City. Yeah. <laughs> they're, on my, they're on my iPod. You know, they're on my iTunes and library now because they're wonderful. But, like, can you talk a little bit about that tribute band? Because what you're sort of talking about there and finding, because some of the bands played all sort of the, the hits and some found those sort of B-sides and those mm-hmm. um, really deep covers. So can you talk a bit about that? tribute band. Yeah. um, Well, the the tribute band scene, I mean, I think, you know, what I've heard from a lot of the people in the bands and people who go see the bands is on the one hand, depending on where you're at, if you're, say, at an 80s club, then the the people there may not be super fans and they may just want to hear the hits. You know, they may just want to hear the suede heads and the, you know, as as my friend Eddie says, who I interviewed, you know, I'm so sorry and double-decker bus, you know, that's the crowd, right? <laughs> that means they want to hear Suedehead and they want to hear There's a Light and you better play those songs and you better play Charming Man and you better play Girlfriend in a Coma, you know? So the kind of, you know, greatest hit, so to speak. If you're going to go to, however, if you're going to go see a tribute band and, you know, maybe there's a few other tribute bands that are playing, like, say, at the convention, you know, I think you have a little bit more leeway as a band to kind of, you know, go to the deep end of the the catalog and, and play something that may be unexpected. You know, I know like, for example, Maladjusted, one of the bands that does primarily Morrissey stuff, they like to do that. You know, they like to kind of challenge their fans a little bit and they'll play something that, you know, maybe no other tribute band has played. Mm-hmm. And I think as fans, because, you know, one of the points I made in the book was like, every single tribute band that's out there is their fans. And in short, there's a spectrum of fandom. You know, you can be a casual fan, you can be a super fan, but I think there's at least a super fan in every single tribute band, you know? Mm -hmm. So in every single tribute band, there's at least somebody who knows Morrissey's catalog inside and out and will, you know, kind of, you know, will bring some of that to the table. Because I think at the end of the day, if you're going to spend time and money and energy to get together with other people who have busy lives to play somebody else's music, it's not even your own original music, you have to like it on some level. You know, you have to be a fan on some level. Um, because it is, it is a, a, it's an effort, you know, especially living in a big city like LA where no one wants to drive more than 10, 20 minutes in traffic anywhere, you know? So <laughs> if you're going to get, you know, six other people together or five people together 
and you're going to find a time to do it and you're going to rent studio time or you're going to figure out like that takes a lot of effort. And it's like you really have to like the music or love the music to, to make that effort to, to do it. And, you know, there's there are some tribute bands, you know, for example, Sweet and Tender Hooligans, and they're they've been around doing it the longest right. and they're great. And they're about to tour the UK and they've played with members of Morrissey's former bands, you know, and some of the tribute bands have. They've played with Boz Boer, who's Morrissey's current guitarist, longtime guitarist. They've played with Spence Cobrin, who was Morrissey's former drummer. You know, Sweet and Tender, Sweet and Tender Hooligans are about to play with Simon Simon Wollstonecraft, who uh, I think I'm saying his name right, you know, who used to drum for Morrissey and mm-hmm. could almost potentially drum with the Smiths at one point. So when when some of the the tribute bands sort of get to that stage where some of Morrissey's former bandmates are playing with them, like that, that becomes it's like another level, you know, it becomes very exciting and you almost feel like you're seeing the real thing, you know. And then you have the tribute bands like Mexrissy, like. Um, Mariachi Manchester, who are doing something t- completely different. You know, they're mexifying Morrissey's and Smith's music, and and I think that's a whole other um, thing that really, again, speaks to the fans, speaks to the shared affinities between Mexico and Ireland historically. What what Morrissey himself has often said, he's said many times, "I wish I was born Mexican." Mm-hmm. Um. And it's funny because, again, when I when I go back and when I say, you know, why does everybody want to know why Mexicans love Morrissey? No one ever asks Morrissey why he wants to be Mexican, you know, right. and I would love to know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so it goes both ways. And and so I think these new kinds of tributes, Mexrisi is, you know, they're from Mexico City and they're a super group because every single one of those musicians are in their own bands. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they came together um, to Mexify, to kind of do their versions of Morrissey and Smith songs, primarily Morrissey. I think their album um, is Morrissey stuff. Right. Um, again, I think speaks to the fans and, and also the translatability of his music. You know, I think that's another reason why we can think about Mexican and Latino fans of Morrissey's because there's something in his music that we hear that we recognize. And when you can put a song of his into Spanish or you can kind of put a cumbia beat to it or a ranchera beat or a mariachi beat to it and it makes sense, you know, like it matches. And I think that that's an aspect of it that, you know, as someone who's not a musicologist, as someone who's not a music scholar, but as someone who understands like culture and how kind of musics travel and how culture travels, um, I think that you can't do that with any, with just any artist. You know, I don't think that you can do that with any I mean, I'm having a hard time imagining, you know, say something like, I don't know, Depeche Mode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beat- <All> right. <laughs> right. I mean, Mexicans love Depeche Mode. You know, Jose Maldonado from Sweet Tender Hooligans, he'll often say that if the Smiths are the Beatles, then, you know, Depeche Mode is the Rolling Stones. You know, right. Mexicans love both. But but I think that there's something in Morrissey's music, in his voice, in his vocal delivery, mm. that reminds us of... Mexican music, you know, mm-hmm. Vicente Fernandez, um, Juan Gabriel, these are Mexican crooners that he's often compared to. And so there's something else at work there, I think, that that really kind of helps us to see this fan base in another way. And do you think part of this is why, like, I was also amazed at, like, that all these tribute bands can coexist together in, in LA and around, right? Like, so you have all these bands and they fill different niches right and they sort of exist in a way that they and they maybe there is competition but it doesn't seem like you know but there's still it it seems like 
they can all find a space. Yeah. And I think it says more about how large the fan base is mm-hmm. and how there is room in LA is just, again, it's big. Um, you know, a lot of these tribute band members, some will play for more than, you know, one or two bands. You right. Know? Um, and that's not to say that there aren't petty rivalries because there are, and, you know, <laughs> and, and plenty of opinions. Um, and some do, you know, again, sort of get kind of exposure and, and, you know, play certain shows that maybe other bands don't. But I think it, it's, it says less about, um, well, I would say it, would, it says more to me about fans and about how we just don't get tired of it. Like, you know, we want to keep hearing the music. We will go see this. And because L.A. is so big and there is room, you know, I think you can have a tribute band. You know, you you, you have bands that will play in, in parts of L.A. that are, you know, that don't get reached by a lot of things. You know, I'm thinking about something like Pomona. You know, Pomona is not in L.A. I mean, it's, it's part of L.A. County, but it's 30 miles from downtown L.A. And again... Mm-hmm. Being being people who don't like to drive very, you know, <laughs> car culture, but it's like, man, like I'm not gonna drive 30 miles to see a tribute band when I know, like, in two weeks there'll be one like 10 miles away, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so it, geographically, you know, the tribute bands kind of cover a lot of ground in that way. Um, and you know, like anything, you know, you're gonna have the fans that'll swear by one band and they'll never go see this other band or you know whatever it is, but. I think at the end of the day, like some people will say the more the merrier, you know, and this is about celebrating this music. It's about um, performing the music for the people who love to hear it and who'll come, they'll keep coming out to see these bands. Right. And and so you play in one and you talk a little I bit about do. that, Like, but I'm fascinated because like, it seems so your Sheila's take about is the we only are. female, all female. Yes. And so I find that interesting too, right? Because I've always thought like the Smiths and Morrissey have have a wide range of like uh, fans of both male and female, right? I, I hate the gender binary, but that's still right. So like that, yeah. there's just this one all female band. That's interesting to me that um, <laughs> you guys are the first, at least in LA. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you know, my it's my sisters and I really. Um, my my both my sisters are in the band as well and we have two other great uh friends now musician friends who who've joined us and you know that was really part of the impetus was like you know we, there are plenty of women Morrissey and Smith fans we see them when we go out to the bars we we are we are them and we see them at Morrissey they're there they're part of the scene and yet it's always the dudes up there, up there. You know mm-hmm. how it is. Yes. Always the dudes up there taking up space. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of like trying to out Morrissey each other, you know, like, <laughs> and it's just like, all right, homie, like sit down, you know, you already sang four songs tonight, you know, and it's just, it kind of got like, oh boy, you know, here, here we go again, like man spreading, you know, <laughs> and I think that because my sisters are both trained musicians, you know, they've been taking piano lessons since they were really little. I never did. I mean, they just, I'm a ham, you know, (laughs) and I'm a college professor, so I have no problem of getting up in front of people and talking, you know, and so they thought, well, you know, you, and I also, like, I'm I'm the fan in the sense that I've loved the music the longest, and I kind of brought them along, you know, I'm the oldest sibling, so my younger sisters grew up listening to me, listening to Morrissey, you know, and who is that guy? And they often say, well, you know, we, you know, they kind of attribute their fandom to me because I brought it into the house and I was this early, you know, teenager growing up and listening to there's a place in hell for me and my friends, you know, over <laughs> and over again. Um, and so I think we just kind of decided that it's, 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 it's time to see some women up there. It's time to see some, 
some, you know, rocker girls holding it down and why couldn't it be us? And I think that we had hesitations um, because there are already like a bunch of tribute bands and it's like, oh man, do we just want to do, you know, do we need to be here? Like, do we have to be here? Um, you know, and then we thought, yeah, because it, we decided from if we're going to do this, it's going to be all women. Right. Like it has to be women. And that was our statement. It's like, look, this is a woman band. And it, we had some dudes, you know, saying, oh, I'll play guitar for you guys. It's like, no, you know, <laughs> if we're going to do this. And it didn't matter how long it took us to find the women who were going to do it and to, to be musicians. But it that was really our statement that we wanted to make. And, you know, there are challenges because you know, a lot of the people will say, oh, they're not that good, or they suck, or, you know, it's like, well, you say that about some of the dude bands, too, so move right. on, you know, what, what really is the issue? Oh, well, you know, she doesn't sound like Morrissey. It's like, no, I, I can't, because I don't have testosterone, you know? Right. I'm, I'm trying, you know, and, and it is hard. Like, I've had to take vocal lessons, and, you know, we've really kind of had to think about what songs we're going to do, because mm-hmm. unlike the guy bands, they can do whatever song they want, because they don't have to worry about what key it's in. Um, that doesn't mean that they all do it awesome. You know, right. it just means that they don't have to worry about that. Whereas for us, it's like, oh, can Melissa hit that note? You know, is it too low? Do we have to change it? So we have to be a little bit more intentional with what songs we do and how we do it because, you know, if it's too low, which some of this early Smith stuff is, you know, some of the Morrissey stuff is, we'll have to kind of put it in. If we, it's the song we really want to do, then we have to really kind of work at well, let's move it up a step or move it up, you know, however it is so that Melissa can hit it. And, you know, and, and that that's a new thing, I think. You know, I, I don't think that all the other guys have to worry. You know, the other bands don't have to worry about that kind of thing. The other thing is, is you know, we've only been playing maybe for about a year and a half before I came out here to Ireland and I've been out here for um, for a fellowship. And it'll it's going on my sixth month. And, you know, I told the band when I'm gone, like, you know, I, it's not that I I'm not don't want to do Sheila's anymore, and that's not the case at all. It's just like we're gonna have to take a six month break, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think now, like, kind of me heading back and you know wanting to kind of do it again, you know, and you know thinking again about okay, what songs can we do? You know, how do we want to enter the scene again? You know, we have to think about all those things because I think a lot of times people will be like, well, we already saw the girl band, you know, we already saw them, you know, we don't have to go see them again, right? You know. And no one thinks twice about going to see Sweet Tender Hooligans five different times. I'm not trying to make that comparison because Sweet Tender Hooligans is awesome and they sound great. And, you know, they've been there for 20 years. Maybe I'll make a comparison with another band who's been around for three years or something. You know, maybe, you know, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. But my point is that no one thinks twice about going to see the guy bands. Right. Five, six, seven times. Right. Well, we already saw them. We already saw the Sheilas. You know, we already saw the girls. They're not even that good. It's like, no, man, like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way, you know? So it's a, it's really about, too, like, trying to challenge the sexism mm-hmm. in the scene, you know? And also, like, you know, the, the people that do come and the fans that come up, I think they end up being, like, surprised that, A, that we can do it, too, and that we can pull it off, and that they actually end up having a good time because it ends up being a sing-along anyway, you know? I mean, the, the people that are there, you know, and they hear us go into a song like Every Day is Like Sunday, and, you know, they'll... They dig it because it's like it ends. It ends up being the song that they know. You know, they know right. that song. They recognize it. Let's sing it. You know, let's let's be part of it. We'll do first of the gang to die, and it. You know, we'll do a song like "Boy with a Thorn in His Side," mm-hmm. and when you do that, and you see like the fans kind of oh, they come a little closer to the stage, and 
you know, they're a little shocked, I think, to see me up there and to see a bunch of girls up there, quote unquote. But I think, you know, by the end of the show, you know, I think that we've kind of won some people over. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we're playing the songs that we all love. You know, they sound a little different, but it's still the same song. Right. Right. And it's it's that idea of also like you don't want to just be this kind of um, like we'll go see this because it's this novelty and then we can move on to the real stuff. Right. Yes. We're really trying to work against that. And I mm-hmm. think that's why, you know, with my sisters being, you know, the kind of more musically inclined, well, all the band, you know, you know, they have, you know, our drummer, Tony and our guitarist, Liz, they each they have band, you know, they're in their own band. They all play original music. My other two sisters are in an 80s band. You know, the Monica before that was in her own original band. So, mm-hmm. you know, these are women that have musicianship and experience and, and experience playing live. But I think the challenge for us coming together is is kind of working on our tightness and working on, you know, really trying to nail the song. Because when I then come in vocally, we know it's already, you know, if, it, if I wasn't there singing, if they were just playing the song instrumentally, like, it's like, hell yeah, like, that's exactly right. it. But we all know, and I know, and I'm very conscious of the fact that when I open my mouth, I'm not going to sound like Morrissey, you know? Right. (laughs) And how can I own it? How can I make it my own? How can we do this in our way? And that has really kind of been, at least in my mind, you know, that's been sort of our our project is if we're going to do these songs, um, we already have sort of one thing. Um, I'm not going to say working against us, but we really have one challenge. <laughs> right. So then how do we work with that challenge? How do we embrace it? In fact, how do we do something else that you can't get with the guys when you go see, I don't know, maladjusted or when you go see these handsome devils, they're great friends of ours. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we're friends with all of the guys. Most we are friends with some of the guys in all of the bands and they've all been very supportive of us. But we also know like, you know, if we're going to do this as girls, as women up there, like we have to also kind of own these songs as well. And these are our songs too. So how do we want to do that? You know? Right. Which is a, a, one of the big issues with fandom, right? Like, how do you how do you move beyond just like, oh, that's a great singer into figuring out like what makes this your own space? Yeah. And also and also the other fans that show up like at the end of the day, you're fans of the music. Right. So, you know, this is what we're also trying to give you. Mm-hmm. So you talk about <laughs> so the next chapter after you talk about this, you talk about the uh, breakfast with the Smiths. Yes. <laughs> and which is fascinating. And, and can, so can you talk a little bit about that radio show and that sort of fan space? Yes. And it's, it's, I'm actually really happy for Jose and, and for all of us breakfast champions, as he calls us, because he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's this month, in fact, this week, in fact, marks the eighth year that he's been doing the show on the air. And that's huge because how many programs these day and age are on for eight years? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, you sitcoms don't last that long, right. you know, there is a lot of, you know, because now we're in an age where media, you know, it's, we have a short attention span. So to have anything that lasts on the radio for eight years is an achievement in and of itself. And the fact that he's do- done it playing nothing but Morrissey and the Smith's music for two hours at a time once a week, mm-hmm. again, is, is just incredible and speaks volumes again about the fans and the fan bases all over the world this time. I mean, you're talking about a radio show that was, I think for a minute on the air in Los Angeles. So the radio station is called Indie 1031. And then it was moved off the airwaves and now it's solely an internet radio station. So Indie 1031 is 103.1 is on the internet. You can access it anytime. And 
his show has since been on the internet. And I think what that did was it really kind of moved the audience beyond the LA airwaves, you know, to a kind of built in audience already, you know, of Morrissey and Smith's fans who are already there and mm-hmm. who are ready for the music and really just kind of was able to do something phenomenal by reaching, you know, all over the world, literally. I mean, he's got he's got regular listeners from Germany, from the UK, from Indonesia, from Mexico, from Peru, you know, and from Australia, you know, from China. I mean, literally, these are the people that tweet every week and request songs. And, you know, I think that Jose will often say that, you know, I don't know how long this was going to last. And, you know, I thought maybe it was going to last six weeks or maybe six months. But the fact that he's been doing it now for eight years says a lot, too, about the regularity of of the idea of appointment radio and that people will actually take time out of their week to tune in and to listen. And it's become, I think in my mind, as someone who listens regularly once a week, you know, in fact, it's going to come on today at five o'clock my time. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, time for time for dinner with the Smiths and my, and my time zone. <laughs> um, I think says a lot about the community of fans that's created by listening to a show, you know, that I think is unique to radio. Um, you don't see each other, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You know, someone might be in the car driving, someone might just be in their room. But the fact that you all are sort of there listening together, too, it's like this virtual um, fan club that's happening simultaneously throughout the world across different time zones, I think is incredible. And that's what makes it different, I think, from the sort of physical space of going to a club, mm-hmm. you know, to listen to a DJ play Morrissey songs for three hours or going to Morrissey Oki. This now, it's like, it's you're imagined. It literally is to use Benedict Anderson's term, you know, this as an academic, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of the imagined community, I think is par excellence with this example of the radio show now, because you are imagining other people are there listening the same time you are to the same songs that you are. And you all love the songs and you're all making time out of your day to come together and listen together. And Jose is on the other end of the micro on the, of the microphone. Um, playing these songs for us, you know, and, and this, and because it's a, it's a request driven show, right? It's not just Jose picking two hours of, of songs and, you know, here's what I like. And he'll do that when he doesn't on, on the days that he, very few days where he doesn't have a lot of requests, he'll, he'll do his DJ thing, you right. know, as he should. But the fact that like 98% of the time, I would say he has, it's all request driven, which I think again, kind of reveals a lot about, the fans and and how devoted they are (laughs) to each other, right? To Mm -hmm. him and music, right? And I thought, yeah, I thought that was super fascinating because we so often with shows, you know, like for like, this is a podcast, someone can listen to it at any time, but this show is really grounded in the idea that we need to be there together, right? We need to listen to it live and together. Oh, yeah. It's like tuning in and watch, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of like what, you know, like, a, you know, a show that's sort of, you know, something like, um, you know, like, like a show that's on TV, like regularly, you know, like once a week. I'm, re- I'm remembering Dallas. I know right. the date, you know, but like Friday nights at nine o'clock. <laughs> Who shot JR? Yes. <laughs> Dynasty fans, you know, um, you know, whatever, whatever it was, you know, this was before, of course, you know, like, yeah, DVR and, you know, on-demand TV. Mm-hmm. And it's precisely because we live in such an on-demand world where you can get anything at any time you want. You can listen to the podcast anytime. You know, you're right. When you, when you have to make it a point once a week to tune in, you know, then that is special. And I think that that, you know, is, it just happens so rarely these days in this world anymore where you actually can, 
you know, depend on people to, to tune in. And because the show comes in, uh, re- the new shows air on Wednesday mornings, LA time. Um, and it rebroadcasts Fridays um, at midnight in LA and eight o'clock in the morning over here in the UK and Ireland. So it's truly breakfast for us. And then again on Sundays, um, you know, so he re- it gets rebroadcasted. Um, and I also think because of the, the times at which it's rebroadcast also kind of enables a, a much larger listenership, you know, um, across several time zones all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. That's okay. Um, so after that, you talk about also you move into, right? So a lot of times when we think about music and musical artists, we do think about these things that connect us to the music itself, right? So mm-hmm. the karaoke, the bands, listening to the songs. But you, your sort of final chapter on fandom looks at Morrissey as this muse for, I love the that playwright, the playwriting festival, right? Um, mm-hmm. poems. Yeah, so yeah, can you talk a bit about that move, like, as as writers, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, where the fandom sort of is a whole other realm, you know, because now he becomes a muse for writers, you know, and we all, those of us who are Morrissey fans know that he is a fan of writing. Mm-hmm. He loves writers. We all know he's an Oscar Wilde fan. We all know that he loves, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of who else he likes in terms of the, like, literary stuff. I mean, he has his own list of books that he reads. Right. I think he... Some blog like published a list of like Morrissey's favorite books. Um, we, his mother was a librarian, and I and I love that tidbit about him because so was my mother. My mother's a retired librarian as well, and and I always know someone who grows up reading, you know, and has an expansive vocabulary like Morrissey. He could be very witty, and in my mind, it makes absolute sense that writers would find inspiration from him in his lyrics. Um, that that's my own fandom connection. I came to Morrissey because I loved the way he wrote. I loved the way he used language. I loved his snarky um, <laughs> attitude about things, you know, and, and it, that matched me at the time. Again, I, I describe myself as sort of being like this surly little teenager who's just over everything. And, oh, my God, I know everything. You know, like my teachers don't have to tell me anything because I already know because I listen to Morrissey. And this is what he's, you know, like, it's yes. just a, yeah, you know, but it's just it's literary. It's beautiful. And I think in Los Angeles, again, because of the way that the fan base has grown and this is decades in the making, you know, again, this goes back to the 1990s and, and before for a lot of the older Smiths fans, you know, as a kind of built in fan base of, of Mexican Latino fans in Los Angeles and already in in a region where, you know, when we think about theater, we don't often think about LA. We think about movies. You know, mm-hmm. we think about, you know, the movie the movie industry for good reason. But there is quite an active community theater uh, community in Los Angeles, and I think it sort of naturally came together um, in Teatro Maz, which is the playwriting festival that happened. Um, it was produced um, in Boyle Heights at at a at a theater founded by a Mexican uh, Chicana Morrissey fan, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, he's, he's, um, he's been amused for poets. There was a poetry festival in South El Monte, in El Monte, which is a community in the East LA area. He is the figure of inspiration for a novelist. You know, he appears, I didn't really get a chance to write about it in the, in the novel. I mean, in my book, but he's in a novel, 
an award-winning novel by an L.A. writer from Echo Park, Brando Skyhorse. He's in Morrissey is in the final chapter of a book called The Madonnas of Echo Park. So I think the fact that Morrissey kind of becomes a literary muse for L.A. writers, for L.A. playwrights, um, speaks to really the kind of part that Morrissey is part of our landscape as well. You know, he's part of the L.A. landscape. He's part of our soundscape growing up, but he's also like literally part of he lived in L.A., you Mm -hmm. know. People have spotted him again at, at certain shops. He has a he has a his his hideouts, his haunts, and I think because we know that he's lived in L.A., he's he's now part of our landscape. Um, and so the next step, the realm of literature, you know, I think given that, given again Morrissey's own love of literature, given his own love of playwrights. Um, it's it's a new way of I mean maybe not new but yeah I think new to people I think the fact that we can express fandom those writers you know can express fandom in a way of including Morrissey in their writings um, it's just another they're creative these are creative fans who are acknowledging the role that Morrissey has played in their lives and the role that Morrissey has played in the lives of a lot of Latinos and Mexican fans in, in the LA area. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it's like the whole writing thing is really fascinating to me. And, and so you and you sort of end the book with that sort of your own sort of writing tribute, right? You talk about where you are now. And then you do this sort of epilogue fan letter, which I absolutely loved. The fan letter. Yeah. <laughs> and so can the, the epistolary. I'm, yes. I'm a big fan of letters and writing. <laughs> And those of us, you know, Morrissey fans, we know that he did too. That very, you know, the 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 stories that he didn't own a fact. He he only owned a fax machine, I think. Like he didn't like to, you know, do things by phone or by email. And like he wrote postcards to people, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> scratch on a postcard. I mean, there's that lyric, right? Um, and he, even in his own lyrics, there's more to life than books, you know, but not much more. You know that lyric very well. I, I do. Love that <laughs> you know, and it's just like he's right. There's more to life than books, you know, but not much more. And those of us who love books, those of us who love literature. Um, to me, it just makes perfect sense that Morrissey now becomes part of our literature. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. I was at I was at a conference and um, for like for teacher and teacher and so there's tons of books there and so there was the one book that is called The Bombs That Brought Us Together. And oh, I said, and that's what I said. I said, is this, I looked at like, and the author was going to be, they're like, yeah, he'll be here later. And they're like, yep, that's what it is. And people were like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I know what this book is. Yes, I right. love it. Bomb, the bomb, the bomb, that'll bring us <laughs> together. I mean, and for me, like I had to end the book because everyone has asked me, have you met Morrissey? And now I have not met Morrissey. I still have not met him. Um, and given that I grew up, you know, as a letter writer, I had pen pals all through my childhood. And I was very proud of the fact that I had the same pen pal for like seven years, you know, and who right. lived in the suburb of Chicago. You know, I mean, again, youth today, <laughs> I don't, it's, it's sad. It's a lost art. You know, like there's this sad thing now where they don't even teach hand, cursive handwriting in schools anymore. You know, literally, I think writing, physically putting a pen to paper um, is becoming de-emphasized mm-hmm. in school and, and with young people. Now it's about tapping things out, you know, on your phone or 
on a laptop. And so as someone, you know, as a young person who grew up loving, loving, loving pens and papers and writing letters to my aunt who lived in Hawaii and to my pen pal who lived in Chicago. And I wrote fan letters. Oh, my God. I wrote fan letters to people like Susie Sue. I love Susie Sue, <laughs> Susie and the Banshees. I wrote fan letters to Terrence Trent Darby when I was, you know, in junior high school. I wrote fan letters. And I wrote to Natalie Merchant of 10,000 Maniacs, you know, like <laughs> I wrote those fan letters and I never heard back. I love I, I mean, my first crush growing up was Olivia Newton-John and I wrote fan letters to her. I wrote to her fan address on the very back that was on the, you know, the physical album. Right. Like right. <laughs> never wrote a fan letter to Morrissey at all. And I'm not sure why I didn't. Um, when I was writing them to everybody, I wrote them to the Indigo Girls. I mean, it was. Re- I mean, there I am, like a freshman in college, still like <laughs> writing fan letters. <laughs> and I think, in you know, in one way, I thought, well, this book will be my fan letter. But I'm like, well, no, because I'm writing about the fans. I'm not really writing about him. Right. And I'm. I have to, you know. And I, when I was thinking about how am I going to end this book, um, originally I was going to have an additional chapter after the the writing, the written words on paper. I was going to have another chapter called Ma's Art and and write about the visual art because that's a whole other, you know, uh, fan uh, contribution that, that that I didn't write about. And just for a few reasons, a lot of it was I think it was hard to get permissions uh, to reprint some of the art. Mm-hmm. So I decided to kind of put that on hold. And I was like, I, I need to end it. And I, I just was like, you know what? I need to write my own letter. I, I finally need to write him. You know, I need to write my fan letter to Morrissey. And so that's that became the epilogue of my book. And you never got and, your haircut. <laughs> and I never got my haircut at Trumpers. And I'm like, it has to do with the name. Of course, nothing good comes out of Trumpers. <laughs> anything with the name Trump, you know. <laughs> but you know, and maybe now, I mean, I hear that his nephew has a copy of the book. Um, you know, someone he put it on Instagram, and someone tagged me. I don't even have Instagram, but it came through on the Twitter. Um, I know that I'll be sending a copy of the book to Boz Bohr and and his wife Lynn, who run a record shop out in London. Um, so I know, and and so it, it, it's I'm pretty sure that Morrissey knows the book exists. Right. And my dream, my ultimate dream, would be to see it on TrueToYou.net, like the <laughs> ultimate kind of endorsement, right? Like you know, like when I saw Metricy on there, I was like, oh my god, you know, like. <laughs> Metricy's not true to you, like if only you know, like and so it's secret my 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 not so secret fantasy I guess anymore is, is to see it on true to you dot net. But you know, I still haven't met him. Um if I ever do get to meet him, I'll be like, I'm the one who wrote that book um that your nephew was holding up on Instagram, you know? <laughs> um and you know, I think I'd love to to go get a haircut with him. Like that would be to me like, you know, the ultimate like fan fan butch moment you know fanboy right. fan girl fan butch <laughs> like i want to go get my haircut where morrissey gets his haircut and you know what let's go get one together let's let's have a beer afterwards you know let's just kind of boy bond in that way <laughs> there you go yes it was i have to tell you the one there was one thing that made me so happy when you talked about the first time you saw morrissey and he played for like 10 minutes Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it might have been a little longer, but in my mind, I'm like, this is it. He played four songs. It was that UCLA show in 1991 where the riot broke out. Well, I've had the same Morrissey experience where he where we went and we went to see him and it was in um, Minneapolis at the Orpheum. And we were so excited. And he literally played for like 10, 15 minutes and then got really disgusted with everybody rushing up on the stage. You know, there were too many, you know, and he was like, I'm done and never came back. And I realized Uh 
any other person I'd be pissed about. But with Morrissey, I was like, yeah, that's Morrissey. That makes sense. I'll see him again and he'll be fine. Right. You see? Yeah. Like how forgiving we are as fans. <laughs> <laughs> there and are other. Fans yes. He like canceled and people live at you. Know, like he is notorious for that. And, oh, very much so. Yes. You know, every time he announces a gig, everyone's like, whatever, he's going to cancel. And most of the time, you know, he does. He, I don't think he does it like. Just to be a diva. I mean, I think that that's what people think. But, you know, I know that this past time, I mean, my colleagues here at the University of Limerick or one of them is very much in the know about things. You know, he has his sources, I think. But he's like, no, like the last tour where he had to pull out of places like San Antonio, Texas and El Paso, Texas and a few other places. One of them, well, one of the legitimate reasons was because Gustavo Mansour, his keyboardist, was ill with, like, mm-hmm. kidney stones thing. So that was, like, a legitimate thing. But then when Gustavo was well, apparently the, the tour company that was sponsoring the tour, like, ran out of money and refused to fund the rest of the shows or, you know, just something kind of, gro- you know, so bad business practices kind of thing. And so, like, Morrissey had to find another tour company. And so, like, there are, like, kind of things like that that happen behind the scenes that you know we the fans just don't know we just think oh my god he canceled again like you know what an ass or what a diva right but there we are lining up like with our money and you know the same shows are selling out in five minutes exactly no yeah or i i get happy when i can't make the show and somebody's like i'm going and then it gets canceled so i'm like yeah like i'll do it anyway (laughs) (laughs) so it didn't matter i mean he's apparently gonna be playing in uh you know when he once he goes to mexico and and like next month in march and in april apparently he's coming to california and california and tech he's gonna make up those shows that were canceled so he is gonna make up that san antonio show and the show so at least he does that and i think that because he does that it's like okay look it's like an extension of goodwill like i'm not being an asshole here like this really was out of my control right you know and he was i'm gonna make up to you right right and he was legitimately really sick for a while and you know Mm -hmm. so and then we found out he almost had cancer. Or, you know, we're like, oh, my right. God, Morrissey can't die. You know, and we had a horrible year of, of losing brilliant people like David Bowie and Prince. And, you know, the joke now, would I remember just seeing things like on Facebook, for my, like, oh, my God, they better like bubble wrap Morrissey. Like nothing better happened to him, you know, like cause we don't know what we would do if he died. And I mean, that's legitimately like, you know, something that, that I saw going around amongst fans, like what would happen if Morrissey died? And. There are people who are like, oh, my God, I don't even want to think about it. Like, I'm going to kill myself. You know, like, people mm-hmm. being really just devastated. And No, I got <sighs> messages. I got more than one message saying, I can't take it in 2016 if something happens to Morrissey, too. And right? I'm like, yeah. I mean, goddamn. Like, when George Michael died at the end, it was like, oh, my God. Now it's, it's a Brit. Like, it better not be another Brit. It better not be Morrissey, you know? <laughs> I know. And then Carrie Fisher, which was really hard for me. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yes, so it was, I mean, it was horrible, the losses. And it it's was. Just, Morrissey, you know, I think he's going to keep ticking away. I mean, I just, there's something about, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I just, I don't see it happening for a while. And yeah. I hope I'm right. <laughs> I hope so. I dream of like a cheesy, like, show in Vegas or something with Morrissey when he's like, you know, 85 or something yeah like like, man you know Mick Jagger is still alive and kicking like you know and who knows what the heck he's putting in his body and you know what he's done and so it's like Morrissey you know we all know he's a vegan we all know that he's like super healthy and you know who knows but 
yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> yes, no, I agree. So what are so you finish this up? Your uh, you sort of talk about what your sort of plans are, your next plans. But what are you working on now? Do you have something you're working on that you can talk about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on an academic essay um, about Morrissey, where I kind of, I basically take uh, chapter five. Um, I develop it a little bit further. I talk specifically about the Whittier Boulevard um, play that I didn't, I only mentioned in the book, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's written by the same playwright that um, co-produced Theatre Maz, Michael Patrick Spillers. So it's an academic essay where I'm really kind of looking at queer, the queer Latino fans and sort of what does it mean to think about Morrissey as an icon of, of queer resistance of, mm. um, um, especially in, in the songs I look at, well, I look at the film Whittier Boulevard, which is about a trans youth who needs, uh, his father's, her father, his father's permission to sign to the form so that, uh, Vic is the name of the character in, in the film version of it. Um, it's, oh, what's the name of the film version? Because it, the, the character's name changes, but basically it's the, the, the trans youth needs the father's permission and the father won't give permission because you're my daughter, you're my little girl, mm-hmm. you know, why do you want to be a boy? You know, that kind of thing. And, and the thing is that Vic, the character, is a Morrissey fan. And so for Vic, kind of a model of queer, young, trans masculinity is Morrissey in the way he dresses. So exploring that aspect of, of queer fandom and sort of what Morrissey means for queer fans. Um, and that's a little bit of me kind of relating again to kind of like the haircut and sort of as someone who identifies as butch, you know, um, Morrissey for me is like, I want to look like Morrissey some days, you know, like Mm -hmm. I want that perfect pompadour. I want that fade. I want, you know, and, and I write about, you know, part of what, when I sing with the band is like, I know I'm never going to sound like him, but I at least can kind of evoke something of him, even if, if it's his haircut or if it's, you know, the jacket and shoes I wear, you know, something, right. So that's that's the academic essay. I also talk about a song um, by the band in Los Angeles called Oso Motley, and they have a song called Gay Batos in Love that they wrote in 2008 during the Proposition 8 kind of gay marriage bill mm-hmm. that the ballot in California. Um, and they mention Morrissey in this song. So I'm kind of making this argument about Morrissey as a figure of queer Latino protest or sort of the way that he gets appropriated as such. Um, as far as anything else, like Morrissey related, um, I don't have anything planned yet. Um, I'm just kind of, you know, the book is done. I'm celebrating it. It it kind of is, is the book I wanted to write and I'm happy with it. I had a a great publisher to work with and it was nice getting to work with an independent press because I had a lot of control over the book. Mm. You know, I got to have, I got to organize it the way I wanted to. I got to have the chapters in there look the way they did. And, and David, his name was David. He, he was just great. He's like, it's your book. You do what you want with it. And so it's really nice to have that kind of freedom with a book like this. You know, I didn't want it to be an academic book. I didn't want a job or a promotion an academic promotion. I didn't want tenure hanging on this book mm-hmm. because kind of this book to be, it, it came like from such a place of, of love really um, for the fans, love for Morrissey. Um, love for the music and it's like something about it being an academic book like I didn't want to sully it like I didn't want a promotion and whether or not I got to you know continue on with my work to hang on this book it's like I didn't want to put that burden on it so it's very liberating to write this book for an independent press you know for a small press and yet 
you know, you, you've read it. Like I obviously mm-hmm. have a kind of an academic analysis going in it. Yes. I don't think it's, you know, it, it's my mother read it and my mother loved it. And she's like, you know, you, you can tell that you have your academic lenses, but it's not overwhelming. It's not, it doesn't make it inaccessible because my whole thing is if I'm going to write about fans and I want fans to be able to pick it up and read it and not have to worry about, Oh my God, you know, I'm never going to be able to read this because a professor wrote it, you know, and right. like that's the last thing I wanted it to be. So it was liberating. I got to kind of mix genres a little bit and, and write the book that it really came from my heart, you know? Right. And you could see that. Right. And I do love the work of Anzal Dua. So I appreciated mm-hmm. that sort of mix and, and thinking about like, and being able to, and yet yeah, right. As a Morrissey fan, I was able yeah. to read it in two lenses, right. As a fan, yeah. I was able to read it and be like, yes, I love these things. But as an academic, I was able to read it and think critically about some of that fandom mm-hmm. in, in ways that I think is important, right. Like I find important and fascinating and that we need yeah. to do more. Like sometimes we don't value that as much. Yeah. And I, I want to value, I think we need to value that in, in I ways. I think so. And, and I think I wanted to offer that to my readers because I'm like, if these are, these are Morrissey fans, they're smart. They read, you know, mm-hmm. they, they know his lyrics, you know, they know, you know, these are people that make art, they're creative, you know, they write plays, you know, so, right. you know, there is to me that, you know, it was about sort of meeting the fans where they are and then maybe offering them something that maybe they didn't have a thought about or, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, um, and that's really kind of, I think I met that goal with the book. Um, and I also think I pushed back, I'm hoping I pushed back against a lot of the stuff that's out there that again, wants to kind of pathologize fans that kind of wants to, you know, make these Morrissey, these Latino Morrissey fans. And it's like some strange object, you know, to be studied. And it's just like, no, like this fandom exists. We know it exists. Um, let's ask a different set of questions, you know, rather than why a bunch of Mexicans love Morrissey. You know, as if like, you know, we like, you know, they're not asking that about why do you like Bruce Springsteen? You know, why does this Mexican person like Depeche Mode? You know, like, I don't know. There's just there's some like we don't question white kids loving rap music. I mean, hello, (laughs) Justin Bieber. You know, we don't those questions aren't asked. And again, there's that underlying kind of racist assumptions about things that, you know, I think I really wanted to just kind of bust up and (laughs) work. You know. No, and I appreciate yeah, and I appreciate that too because you can Google like Latino Morrissey fans and you'll find a ton of things. And usually it is written by sort of white journalists. There's even what is it, Passions Just Like Mine? Is that the documentary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. which I just like, and I'm like, <laughs> oh. But again, it's that kind of gaze, you know, like mm-hmm. ooh, like this thing, you know, that I have to get to the bottom of. And it's like, mm, let's let's switch it up a little bit. And, and I think coming from me as as a fan, you know, as someone who's who knows LA and there's a big reason why LA was a, was a big part of the book is not just because I'm from LA and I know that's fancy the best, but because it just offers a lot to look at, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, in another book or in another life, you know, it'd be interesting. You know, I really, I asked that question at the end when I really do want to know what other fan communities do. How do they honor Morrissey? How do they express their fandom? What does fandom look like in Jakarta, Indonesia? You know, what does it look like in, you know, Topeka, Kansas, you know, like there are, right. you know, in other words, like there are other fan communities. We know, like, for example, in San Antonio, Texas, you know, they had an art show, you know, a, a celebratory art event to actually kind of mark Morrissey playing there. Unfortunately, that was one of the shows that got canceled and now it's being rescheduled. But, you know, I know that, you know, New York, they have they have their own DJ nights, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I, 
you know, I'm, I always like love to know about what other communities, how other fans express themselves. And yet there's something very specifically Mexican about making Morrissey into the La Virgen of Guadalupe. You know, there's something very specifically Mexican borderlands about putting Morrissey in a mariachi outfit and mm-hmm. making a graphic out of that. There's something specifically borderlands about having five musicians that are all from different parts of Mexico or Los Angeles or Texas or other parts of California that converge in Los Angeles and decide we're going to play mariachi music, but we're going to play mariachi music and do Morrissey songs and Smith songs. Right. And that's I mean, like it's very unique to the Mexican U.S. borderlands, like because the, these things I don't think could emerge anywhere else. Exactly. And so, and we've been talking for a while. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I'm live, man. Wow. I know. I know. I'm like, oh, we've been talking for a bit. So, I, um, so we should probably wrap this up so, so we can, you know, get on to other things. But is there any last things you want to say about Morrissey? You have a favorite, you have an absolute favorite Morrissey song, oh, Morrissey story? I, I do like a lot of favorites, as a lot of fans do. You know, it's hard to pick just one. Um, and I think it just depends on what, where I am in life. You know, I grew up, when I grew up, you know, Cemetery Gates, you know, was the song, you know, um, and, you know, a little bit later on, you know, songs from, you know, songs like Sing Your Life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, songs from the compilation Bona Drag. You know, we, I love Bona Drag. I think these days, you know, I, I do go back to Cemetery Gates. I, you know, I was listening to, um, in fact, the other day on, I was listening to another radio show out of L.A. and the song Boy with a Thorn in His Side comes on. And, you know, we, we talked about sort of being excited when we hear a Smith or Morrissey song on the radio when it's just mm-hmm. random and like not expected. And I heard it and it was boy with a thorn in his side. And I got so emotional because <gasps> not just because it was a Smith song on the radio. I'm like, but it's LA. So of course, you know, but it was just like, I love the song. It's such a gorgeous song. And it took me back to when my partner and I went to, we went to San Sebastian, Spain, a little tiny town in the Basque region of Spain a few years ago. And San Sebastian, I mean, obviously the name of the town, but there's also a church. And I remember thinking when I was there, you know, trying to, you know, make this connection, hearing before that Morrissey, you know, kind of, again, being the literary guy that he is, um, Oscar Wilde's name, when Oscar Wilde was released from prison and was living life under a pseudonym, um, one of the names that Oscar Wilde chose to call himself was Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian has a lot of ties mythologically as, as a sort of like, you know, gay men of some reason have sort of embraced him as a saint. And if you see a statue of San Sebastian, like I did in, in the town that day in Spain, you know, he has arrows. He's a martyr and they shot him with arrows and he has arrows coming out of his side. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the original boy with a thorn in his side. Mm. You know, like a, this is what Morrissey was singing about. And when I made that Oscar Wilde connection, I had read about it from other fans. I'm like, well, yeah, duh, you know. So it's just, you know, again, hearing that song in that place, of course, I didn't have that reference. You know, when I listened to it for the first time in 1986, I just loved it because I love The Queen is Dead and I loved Louder Than Bombs. These were the Smiths compilations that I actually really quite loved, you know, growing Mm up. But man, hearing Boy with the Thorn in the Side just got me, you know, and I was like, oh. (laughs) And I would say, too, like a song like um, Staircase at the University, you know, off his new album. Right. Love, you know, again, with that kind of reference to like, how hard and difficult it is sometimes to be a university student and just in the university as, as an academic, as, as a, as a, you know, as a woman. Um, 
And right now, shoplifters, shoplifters of the world unite and take over. It's like, yeah, like that's my like, you know, kind of I want to go and just kick some ass and go join a march right now and, you know, <laughs> join a protest with that song. And, you know, so oh, yes. I think my moments, you know, it depends on the moment, but definitely those are amongst my favorite. I write it in the book about um, there is a place in hell for me and my friends, um, the K-Rock version of it, having a very special place in my heart. Um, so there are quite a few <laughs> and, and every time, you know, every time our, our band, you know, tries to think about new songs we want to play or, you know, what song list we want to put together, or, you know, what set list we want to do. And I'll tell you, man, that every time, at the be- especially at the beginning, when we started rehearsing first of the gang to die, I, there were times when I would start to sing it and I would just stop and I would break down, mm. you know, because it's. You know, again, thinking about that song and sort of where it comes from and, and what Morrissey's singing about in terms of, you know, the mortality of our communities, of our youth, of right. our brown in particular. And, you know, in typical Morrissey style, you know, there he is like kind of singing about this young boy who was the first of his gang to die. And in some ways it's like a corrido, you know, like people have kind of likened it to a kind of Mexican ballad, you know, about a, a hero who dies, right, um, in battle. Mm-hmm. Man, you know, my father's name is Hector, you know, so I'm sure that there's something going mm. on there to hear that song. But that song just gets me, and it took me a long time to get through rehearsals without crying, you know? Right. Song. So I think when music can do that to someone, you know, when you can hear a song and it just touches you somewhere that you just don't quite know. I mean, that's the affective, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's, we can't always rationalize why or know why. We just know that it's getting us somewhere, and, and that it's pretty powerful when that happens. And, Morrissey can do that all day long. You know? Yes, yes. I agree. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. So on that, Melissa, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Oh, it's been great talking to you, too. Yes. Thank you for your questions. Yeah, so again, um, this was Melissa Hildago, the author of Moslandia, Morrissey Fans in the Borderlands. Yay. 